Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Constitutional Matters with myself, Zakira Desai, in our new exciting segment marking the 20th anniversary of the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa. As a seven-part series, Constitution Matters brings to light a joint venture on progressive constitutionalism by the Voice of the Cape Radio, the Students for Law and Social Justice, and the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution. Now, just as background information, the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa was approved by the Constitutional Court on the 4th of December 1996 and took effect on the 4th of February 1997. The document has subsequently been acclaimed as one of the most progressive constitutions and enjoys high acclaim internationally. Now, as we know, the Constitution is the supreme law of the country, providing the legal foundation for the existence of the, of the Republic while setting out the rights and duties of its citizens. But the history of the Constitution, as well as its symbolism within post-apartheid South Africa, is not widely understood. So in our first episode of Constitution Matters, we discuss the history of the Constitution with Profe Professor Pierre de Frost. Sorry about that, Professor. Uh, we current, who currently lectures South African constitutional law. Joining him in studio is Professor Hugh Korda, Professor of Public Law at UCT. So, Professor Pierre de Frost, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so just to start with you, Professor Pierre de Frost, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and your work within the Constitution? Yes, well, I work at the University of Cape Town, obviously, and um, my job is to teach, of course, constitutional law and issues of social justice. And at the same time, I'm also, of course, involved in the public sphere to try and explain to members of the public uh, issues relating to the Constitution because like for example for t today there was the big constitutional court case and so people want to know what actually does it mm. mean the judges and the lawyers use this fancy terminology yes. how do we how do we actually make sense of it all yeah and hopefully today and starting from today in our, in our series people will be able to make sense mm. of the Constitution now moving to you professor you could um, if you could tell us a bit more about yourself with regards to your work um, in terms of the Constitution Sure, thank you very much. I also am delighted to be here. This is something of a passion, public education about the Constitution. My involvement uh, was most uh, intense in the drafting of the interim Constitution at the negotiations in Kempton Park from uh, May to November 1993. But then I also chaired uh, one of the technical committees which advised one of the drafting theme committees for the final constitution from 1994 to 1996. Um, I think what is critical to remember is that uh, before this constitution, whatever parliament said was law. Mm. And uh, moving to Boipelo uh, Makoka, who is the deputy chairperson of the SLSJ UCT, um, could you tell us in uh, 30 seconds what is the SLSJ and uh, how are they working in terms of the constitution? Thank you very much. Uh, good evening. Good evening to all of our listeners and to all of SLSJ that's tuned in right now. SLSJ, or as we are formerly known, the Students for Law and Social Justice, is a South African student organization dedicated to protecting human rights, preventing discrimination, and promoting social justice and the rule of law. The society has been formed in partnership between students of the various universities of South Africa with the aim to transform legal education and access to justice. 
Okay, so uh, we will go take a break right now. And uh, when we come back, we will carry on with Professor Pierre de Fos and Professor Yu Korda. Welcome back to Constitution Matters. I'm your host, Dakira Desai, and joining me in studio is Professor Pierre de Foss, who currently lectures South African Constitutional Law, and Professor Yu Korda, Professor of Public Law at UCT. Uh, just as a kind reminder to our listeners, if you have any concerns or questions on the Constitution, please WhatsApp us on 072-238-0712 or SMS us on 47913. In our first episode of Constitution Matters, we discuss the history of the Constitution. To open the discussion, we begin with you, Professor DeFoss. We know that the Constitution laid the foundation of a democratic South Africa, as envisioned by the authors of the Freedom Charter, with this resounding call, the people shall govern. Now, can you take us through the history of the Constitution and the tenets on which it was founded, uh, with a special focus on the preamble? Yes, well, uh, the, it's important to understand that, of course, there were two constitutions in the process of getting to where we are now, because there was, a, a, first we had apartheid, of course, yeah. and we don't really count that constitution. And then, in, 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 the, uh, in between, the, to get to the democratic election, there was a negotiating process to have an interim constitution. So during that process, uh, the CODESA process, the parties came together, but they were not elected, and they came together and they negotiated an interim constitution. And then after the election, there was the, the parliament, the two houses of parliament came together and sat as a constitutional assembly. And that parliament, the democratically elected two houses of parliament, actually negotiated the final constitution uh, that we have today. Okay, and uh, the foundation of the Constitution, we know that it's obviously it lays the foundation mm. for a democratic South Africa. Can you take us uh, through what, what, what tenets was it based on in terms of the Freedom Charter? And uh, when we go to Professor Yug, um, Professor Yug Korda, if you could tell us uh, what is the basis in terms of the Declaration of Human Rights. So starting with you, Professor DeForce, uh, just take us through the Freedom Charter and how that influenced the Constitution. Obviously, the Freedom Charter was a very important influence on the constitution-making process, also because the Constitutional Assembly was dominated by the ANC, and uh, from that tradition, obviously, the Freedom Charter was very important. The most important part of the constitution was that from now on, we're going to have a system in which the people shall govern. So the people are actually the most important ones. We forget that because we think the politicians are more important, but actually the people are the ones who have the final say on everything. And we also said that we want to, the, the whole constitution needs to respond to our past. It needs to respond to the effects of apartheid, uh, all the injustice of apartheid. Uh, we, we don't firstly, firstly, we don't want a constitution that's going to make it difficult to address the effects of of the uh, past and the injustices, economic and social injustices of the past, and we want to move towards a system where the differences can be managed, and that we we're never going to go back to the kind of apartheid thinking where we say that one group is dominating 
and that group and their ideas is the mm. only thing that matters and nobody else and their no and their rights have no place in the society so that that is really the response that the constitution was having against the past then just to go back to the concept of the people shall govern is quite a broad idea if you could perhaps just clarify what that means in real terms in real terms it means of course uh, on a very uh, practical level that every five years the electorate actually votes for the par parliament and then parliament elects the president and so on the voters can of course every five years change their vote but a very other very important part of the constitution is also where it said that when the parliament comes together and make laws there must be public involvement so whenever parliament is going to pass legislation you will see that they always invite anybody to actually give an input. So whether you're now a lawyer or professor, whether you're a person in the street, you can actually write to Parliament and say, no, I don't agree with this law, or yes, I think it's a good idea. And mm -hmm. so in that sense, people can have their voices heard, not only at the election time, but also mm -hmm. other times. I, I think we don't always use that yes, as much yes. as we should, but that is, it's, the possibility is there. Yeah. Because the, the politicians really should listen to us, the voters. And uh, Professor Yukor, Dave, you could just take us through the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights and how that impacted our current constitution. With great pleasure. Can I just say something about the atmosphere in which the constitution was drafted? Yes. Because it is r very apparent today that anybody who's younger than about 35, okay? Uh, which uh, is not us. Which is not us. <laughs> Professor, you could, if you could just one second, uh, we would uh, catch, uh, catch up with that um, idea in a moment. Uh, we're just going to just stop for ads for one second. And uh, when we come back, we will carry on. Welcome back to Constitution Matters. I'm your host, Dakira Desa, and joining me in studio is Professor Pierre de Foss and Professor Yukorda. And uh, if just a reminder to our listeners, if you have any concerns or questions on the Constitution, please WhatsApp us on 072-238-0712 or SMS us on 47913. Uh, before the break, uh, Professor Yukorda, you were speaking to us about the people shall govern and this idea of uh, where the, the, the origins of the Constitution. So if you could elaborate on what you were previously saying. Thank you very much. Having been involved in the negotiations in 1993 and the drafting of the first Bill of Rights, which I'll come to in a moment, I think it's really important for the modern generations to remember the atmosphere in which the Constitution was drafted. We were in a country almost uh, at war with itself. Uh, there was uh, the, the Chris Harney assassination that just took place during that year, 1993. There had been the Boy Patong and the Bishaw massacres, but put Putitswana invasion, the, the KZN problem, uh, uh, the KZN, KZN province was a battlefield. And uh, even during the negotiations, the Afrikaner Weerstand Bewegung drove an armored vehicle through the old front facade of the negotiating forum. So it was a really embattled time, and it was really uh, in an incredibly wonderful achievement that the, co that the interim constitution was drafted. Now the interim constitution included a chapter on the protection of fundamental rights. 
The Freedom Chart, which you've already referred to and Professor De Fosses responded on, uh, was informed that drafting. But after the Second World War, after 1945, with the foundation of the United Nations Organization, one of the first things it did was to draft what is known as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948. And that document has formed the, the inspiration and foundation for many of the modern Bills of Rights, and it did ours. So in drafting the Interim Bill of Rights, which has remained essentially in place uh, in the final Bill of Rights of 1996, there were a number of influential documents, but the Universal Declaration was one of the most important. And in terms of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we know that uh, it was uh, it, it came into effect in the same year, 1948, that apartheid came into effect, and the National Party didn't, in fact, they abstained from from signing it or ratifying mm -hmm. it in any way. So, is there any symbolism in that, in the fact that now in our new constitution we have actually adopted these principles? I think there's massive symbolism in that. Uh, the South African government was one of only six governments, members of the United Nations, that refused to adopt the UDHR in 1948. We are, and, and then suddenly, to have in place from 1994 onwards, April the 27th, one of the most progressive uh, bills of rights, which became even more sophisticated and progressive in the final constitution, we have essentially come to lead the world uh, on paper, and that's the important point, mm -hmm. on paper, in terms of what rights should be uh, incorporated and how they expressed, particularly on the socio-economic rights uh, front, which I think we should talk about if we've got the chance a little yeah. bit more. Uh, just to, uh, as an introduction to the Constitution, we know that uh, many of us, including myself, we aren't experts on the Constitution, uh, but we know when, the devel when developing the Freedom Charter in 1955, the ANC sent about 50,000 volunteers into townships and the countryside uh, to collect f uh, freedom demands from, uh, the, from the citizens. Um, and uh, could you comment on whether or not the Constitution has in fact been successful in encapsulating the basic rights and obligations of South Africans? Well, I think it has, and uh, I think it's two, uh, two points need to be made. The first one is that during the negotiations for the for interim and final constitution, there was a lot of public involvement. In the interim constitution, there was a lot of public involvement in the form of protests. So, for example, COSATU, the ANC, and so on, uh, mobilized large groups of people to make sure that this constitutional compact uh, gets created. And then in the final constitution, during that process, people were invited to write in. So people could write in on a piece of paper and, <laughs> and they could take part in the process um, in that way. So whether the, the Freedom Charter's provisions were, the, they wouldn't, you won't find, you will not find the same, exactly the same wording in the constitution that is in the Freedom Charter. But many of the provisions and the, uh, the spirit of the Freedom Charter, that human rights are both about your personal freedoms, but it's also about economic issues and economic inequality and that you, you can't really have rights. What's, what's the use of the right to free speech if you d don't have any food to eat? Yeah. That, that kind of view is very important. And um, Professor Yukurjev, you could weigh in on this. I'd be very glad to do so. In fact, in, in addition to inviting people to write in, the Constitutional Assembly ran a massive public education program using radio stations, television, comics, uh, comic strips uh, and, and things like that. And every single weekend, 
members of parliament went out to the rural areas to gatherings to hear the people to hear what they wanted indeed in, on some occasions flying by helicopter to places where there were no roads so that they could hear from the people what they wanted and there were massive petitions as well signed by up to a million people which which were brought in to bear there and in terms of the emotional side of the constitution we can mm. understand that this we are extremely proud of, of this document uh, could you take us through the just in in, a, in i know it's a very short segment before we go for ads if you could just tell us uh, what was that like you know developing the constitution and what was that process like in actually realizing it well the the whole process of coming to democracy of course is very emotional because there was such a dramatic change from having lived in an oppressive apartheid system to suddenly living in a society under the constitution. So for me, one of the most beautiful things that happened after the constitution came in was the day when Nelson Mandela was inaugurated. So he was inaugurated in terms of this constitution. And all the, um, the military used to be fighting against the people flew over with the new South African flag in salute of the democratic president. Of course, that is the moment where I started crying. <laughs> <laughs> um, Professor Korda, take us through. I'm sure that you can remember exactly where you were at the time. I was. Uh, I, I certainly can. I was at home watching it. I think we were all glued to our televisions yeah. at that point. But I think that the emotion of the, of the whole constitution drafting process for me was in the establishment of bonds of humanity, of human friendship and respect between people who, coming into the process, had been miles apart in terms of their views, etc., etc. All sorts of alliances, friendships and relationships of trust were built up in that negotiating process and that continued through the drafting of the final constitution. It has largely disappeared now. <laughs> Just to uh, move to our WhatsApp line, we do have a WhatsApp that's asking, and I think many of us will actually ask this question, how can the lay person um, access the Constitution and the understanding of the Constitution? Yes, so that is uh, an important issue. The, the, um, the, the problem is, of course, that if, if you want to enforce your ra rights or whatever, you need to have a lawyer. So um, otherwise it's very difficult. Luckily, there are many organizations like the CASAC, other NGOs, who take up people's uh, plight if they have a complaint about the Constitution. You can go to the Human Rights Commission or the Gender Commission or the Commission that I call the Commission with a long name, the Commission mm -hmm. for the Protection and Promotion of Religious and Linguistic Minorities, and you can ask them to help you. But you, if you have internet access, there are also many resources. If, for example, there are little videos that I've actually been involved in, the Civics Academy videos, which explain to people in very simple terms that you can easily understand what different parts of the Constitution actually mean, so that, because if you know, have that knowledge, that is the start when you are empowered to start uh, in, insisting on your rights. And can I just add to that, yeah, sure. that uh, Professor DeFoss is far too modest to mention that he writes a blog called Constitutionally Speaking, yes. which <laughs> if you have the internet, it's a great blog. Uh, is, is the most wonderful resource and he's been at it for about 10 or a dozen years or so and many hundreds of thousands of people access that blog. 
So if we could move to the architectural design of the Constitutional mm. Court. Mm. We know that um, the, the court itself is quite symbolic in what it means for South Africans. So Professor Pierre de Foss, if you could just tell us uh, what, is, what, what was the, the concept behind the architectural design of the court? Well, the, the architecture of the court, there are two very important aspects to this. Firstly, the space where the court was built. It was the old jail where people like Nelson Mandela was, uh, was held after they were first arrested uh, the first time. And that old jail, which was also the jail where many people were held for uh, past infringement, because in the apartheid year, of course, if you're a black African person, you needed a pass to be in the city. And so they broke down some of that old jail, some of the old bricks they even include in the court building. So if you look on TV, when they show the constitutional judges sitting there, behind them there's a brick wall. Those bricks are actually from the old um, jail. And the symbolism of that is we want to remember the past so that we never repeat it again. And we want, to res we want this Constitution to be a document to try and help us, and of course the Constitution cannot do this alone, but to try and help us to move towards a better society. And the other thing is that if you go into the foyer of the Constitutional Court, um, you see that it's almost like you go, you're walking under a tree because it has little uh, slits of yeah. um, space at the top, and the, the pillars are skilled, and the argument is, or the, the architect said, this is to suggest the old African idea of justice being dispensed under a tree. Mm -hmm. That it is not this thing out there, uh, the people with authority that is sitting there telling you what to do. This is a communal thing. We together sit here and through talking with each other, we get to the wisdom of really respecting each other. Professor uh, Korde, you can weigh in here. Thank you very much. Uh, there, there are two other features of the court which I think are particularly important. Firstly, it's not a huge high building, so it doesn't attempt to dominate uh, uh, people around it. And uniquely for a court in this country, when the lawyer is standing and arguing before the bench, he or she is at eye level uh, contact at the same level as the judges. Most, almost every other courtroom in this country, the judge or the magistrate sits on a pedestal above in a dominant position. Here the standing council are at the same level. The second aspect is that it, there's a magnificent set of wooden doors. Mm -hmm. I don't know high, uh, how high, about 10 meters high. And on it are depicted all of the rights in the Bill of Rights in different languages uh, and with their numbers and it's a really impressive set of doors opening and, and uh, ex-justice uh, Albie Sachs would not forgive us if we, omit, uh, we omitted to mention all the artworks yes. because if you walk down uh, the passage which uh, goes down steps uh, parallel to the court and the judges chambers uh, is, the, is a, a completely magnificent set of artworks uh, drawing on some of the most painful mm -hmm. parts of our history. Yeah, I think that the the court itself is a, it's a, it's a, it's a showpiece for South African mm -hmm. talent and how we drew on our past and made it act, um, and brought it alive. Uh, one of the beautiful pieces is the blue dress. Yes. I think the woman with the blue dress. Yes, so, uh, yes. I think when we come back, we can elaborate on that. I, I, it's something that I love myself. So we will take ads for now, and when we return, we are back with Professor Pierre de Foss and Professor Hugh Corridor.
Welcome back to Constitution Matters. I am your host, Dakira Desa, and joining me in studio is Professor of Constitutional Law, Pierre de Force, and Professor Yukurda, Professor of Public Law. So, before the break, we discussed the widely admired architectural design of the Constitutional Court. Uh, we now discuss the cases tried in the Constitutional Court. Uh, starting with you, Professor Pierre de Force, you know, we, earlier you were mentioning the, uh, during the ad break at least, you were mentioning this, the, the, the design of the court. So, if you can elaborate on that and uh, perhaps then give insight into how the judges are chosen. Yes, so the the interesting thing for me um, when I went to the court and I went on a tour of the court was not only the artwork that is that really responds to South Africa's history, once again reminding us and anybody who goes there that this constitution is really a project to try and respond and to move us away from the past and the effects of the past um, in as much as that is possible. And, but uh, if you go into the court, the judges, once they have heard the arguments, then they go to a room where they sit and they have to discuss the case because there are 11 judges. And they sit around a huge round table that is in the form of a tree stump, just they doing justice under a tree. And then they decide the case by uh, discussing with one another. Once again, it's this collegial thing, this collaborative thing, and they make a vote. Sometimes the judges disagree, then you get a minority opinion and a majority opinion. Um, the, the students don't like that because yeah. they have to read both. Um, and in that sense, uh, the, w the idea is that you have many judges and those 11 judges together will come to a more wise decision. How the judges are uh, appointed, the Chief Justice and its Deputy Chief Justice is appointed by the President after consulting various people. The other judges are uh, again appointed by the President, but the President cannot just choose anyone. The Judicial Service Commission, which is this body made up of both lawyers, uh, judges and politicians, they nominate people. For every vacancy they nominate four people and then the president choose one of those four people to be on the bench. So it's kind of yeah. balance between making sure that the people appointed will be independent and impartial, but also acknowledging that these people will make decisions that have will have political ramifications, so there must be influence of the politicians. And uh, how many judges need to preside in order for judgment to be made? Well, the, the eight of the 11 judges need to sit before they have a, what we call a quorum, before they can actually make a valid decision. Sometimes all 11 sit, sometimes less than that sit, but you have to be at least eight. Okay, and Professor Yukurde, if you could come in here, uh, can you take us through the types of cases that are tried in the court? Well, today, uh, any legal question uh, can be decided by the court, but the court has to uh, decide to hear a particular matter so it's called they give leave for a matter to come to be appealed to them this is a relatively recent innovation uh, until approximately two years ago only what are called constitutional questions in other words questions which arose about the wording of the constitution or uh, involving constitutional rights and duties could come to the constitutional court Okay, and this is a question that's open to the floor. Um, given the fact that prominent cases have been brought before the court, and in recent years we know the Nkandla and the Sasser issue, um, it sort of it, it created quite public hype about it. Um, has this changed the role or transformed uh, the role of the court uh, since its inception? And uh, has the court been successful in holding individuals to account? 
I'll start, and I know Professor De Force will uh, follow. I think that it is true that in the early days of the court, from 1995 onwards, the uh, other branches of government, Parliament and the Cabinet, generally complied with the Constitution to quite a great extent and were quite successful in implementing the various aspects of the Constitution. Over the past eight or nine years or so, the gap has grown and uh, the uh, manner in which uh, Parliament and uh, the Executive, the Cabinet and the Public Administration have acted ha has increasingly departed from the principles and the uh, rules of the Constitution. So more and more and more people have taken both political questions and uh, human rights questions to the Constitutional Court for their resolution. Now that is the role of the judges, they must do that, they have no choice. But uh, my view is that the Constitutional Court has, has been incredibly careful not to tread on the toes of Parliament and Cabinet. And Professor Peter Fons, before we continue with the whether or not it's been successful, we have a WhatsApp in from 0749, and this person says, so constitutionally, the people don't decide, but the politicians do. So if you could just clarify what, uh, what we mentioned earlier. Yes, I, I think in any political system, there is a problem or a danger in that, of course, we have representative democracy, which means we vote for a party or people, and then they make the decisions on our behalf. So uh, they c it can easily feel, well, it's actually the politicians. Of course, those politicians are only there because we voted for them. We can always vote them out. <laughs> and so uh, e even when we talk about holding the branches of government accountable and making sure that they do what they need to do, yes, the court plays its role, but we, as the people, also must play our role. We have to be engaged. We have to make sure that we let uh, our political parties, if you're a member of a party or not, ma make them know what we really think so that they can respond to this. This is not a perfect system because it takes five years for yeah. there to be a new election, so it's a slow process. But uh, I think we, we have to take the power and we have to make, remember that we have a voice, especially if we stand together as a group, whether it's in a protest march, whether it's a uh, picket, whether it's writing a petition, writing to the paper, whatever. So in saying that, can you say then that the Constitution has either been successful or non-successful in holding individuals account well, accountable? I, sorry. Yes, I think the Constitution has by and large uh, been successful. Um, I think that the, the difficulties come in that the members of the other branches of government have uh, not always done what they in terms of the Constitution are supposed to do. For example, implement the rights, uh, the social economic rights in the Constitution and so on. So, you know, if we think, uh, if you look around you and you think, do we, have we really broken down that inequality that was there in 1994? No, we haven't. Mm. Um, is this the Constitution's fault? I'm not sure. I think it is more the people who has to implement the, the Constitution who hasn't done that as, as well as they could have. Um, and uh, I'm not only calling, talking about the politicians. Yeah. And Professor Kordev, you could weigh in here. We know that the, we can't speak about the Constitution without speaking about the Bill of Rights. Um, can you perhaps give insight into whether or not uh, the Constitutional Court has been successful in respecting or, I or enabling the protection of the Bill, the Bill of Rights? Yes, happily on that one. 
the judgments of the constitutional court are widely admired throughout the world the the judges are lucky because they each one is assisted by two very bright law graduates who are their researchers so they draw on learning throughout the world so the judgments are excellent but the court cannot seize a matter out of society on its own parties have to bring uh, a case to them and uh, for them to to resolve and once the judgment has been delivered the parties affected have to implement the judgment and we've seen what happened last year with the Enkandla judgment and we have seen this whole issue today with Sasa would not have been before the court today if the Minister for Social Development had done what was she was ordered to do almost three years ago and so that is part of what is known as the rule of law that uh, we rule through law rather than through force but those who are ordered by the law as expressed by the highest court in the country in a judgment to act in a particular way have to do that Okay, thank you, Professor Yu Korda. We will continue uh, with that with that topic uh, when we come back from ad breaks. We take an ad break now, and we will continue this really interesting topic when we get back. to Voice of the Cape 91.3 FM. Uh, we are Constitution Matters, our very exciting segment that has begun today. I am your host, Dakira Desai, and joining me in studio is Professor Pierre de Foss, who is currently lecturing South African Constitutional Law, and Professor Yu Korda, Professor of Public Law at UCT. A reminder to our listeners, please feel free to WhatsApp us or SMS, SMS us. Our WhatsApp line is 072-238-0712, and our SMS line is 47913. In our first episode of Constitution matters we are discussing the history of the Constitution and in case you missed the previous uh, segments uh, before the broke before the break we discussed the cases tried in the constitutional court but to conclude in our last few minutes could uh, professor Pierre de Foss and professor Corder uh, give a brief understanding of uh, the failure and the successes of the court and whether or not society has hope or have they lost hope mm. in terms of public opinion and with regards to the con the future of the constitutional court e yes if I can start I would think that there is a there is a general um, I would think disappointment um, that we are not yet where we wanted to be in when we started this project in 1994, and that is a, a largely a political disappointment. It's a it's a disappointment that the politicians haven't really do done what they should have done, to put it bluntly. Um, whether the constitutional court could have done more. Uh, is a difficult question because on the one hand the judges are not democratically elected they don't have uh, a police force or an army they cannot go and uh, themselves arrest a minister who is not doing his or her job for example so they uh, the, ju the judges are a little bit careful to try and uh, 
make sure that they don't overstep their power, they don't overstep the mark. And that means that some of the things that people maybe want the court to do, it cannot do. For example, after the Mkandla matter, some people that I engage with said, but this court is useless because it should have ordered that the president be fired. You know, if you come yeah. from a certain political perspective, you're going to have that view. And then I had to tell them, well, it's not for the court to fire the president because the, that would be undemocratic. It is for the parliament to decide. And the parliament had a vote and they decided not to fire the president. That's how democracy works. Sometimes you're on the winning side, sometimes yeah. you're on the losing side. So we have to remember that the court, uh, we mustn't expect the court miraculously to do everything because that it cannot do. The other problem is, of course, that uh, it's not so easy to get access to the courts because it costs money. Mm -hmm. And there, I think we really have to think very hard how we can make it easier for people who really have uh, constitutional yeah. problems to go to court. Professor Kurda, we have a question uh, on our WhatsApp line. And uh, let me quote this question. Is the compromise really a sellout if the peace resulting from it served the values of dignity, equality and freedom more than armed conflict would have been? Well, my uh, answer to that is to say that I uh, think completely that the compromises that were done, and it is important to acknowledge, the Constitution in the final form, less so than the interim Constitution, was a contract of compromise where nobody had completely the upper hand, but uh, the parties agreed upon a common basis to pursue common goals. The Constitution is, uh, I would argue, a realistic ideal towards which we must strive. But we, we cannot, it's, it's words on the paper, it, make, it, it takes human agency both to give meaning to it and to implement it. It's not the job of the courts to implement the Constitution, it's the job of the elected branches of government and those whom they appoint in the cabinet and in the public administration. So I think that uh, the questioner has uh, uh, rightly focused on three of the key values in the Constitution in Section 1A, human dignity, equality and freedom. And that was a major triumph. If you consider that apartheid was all about the denial of human dignity, equality and freedom. And the alternative would have been a continuation of civil war which would have le uh, led to this country being a complete wasteland. Do you then feel that these principles of human dignity and equality has translated following 20 years or more than 20 years of democracy? Well, having lived through uh, most of my life under apartheid, uh, I uh, can absolutely say that we're a much better society than we were. I must express my own disappointment. I think we could have been a very much more uh, better, very much more better than we uh, than than we are, uh, and and we are seeing dangerous tendencies of of people resorting to populist uh, points of view, uh, which are denials of human dignity, equality, and freedom, and getting away with it. And for me, that's a real danger sign because we do not want to go back, as Professor DeForce said. Uh, President Mandela, at his inauguration, is famous for having said, "Never." Never 
and never again uh, must we repeat what um, must a human being deni be denied their dignity, equality, and freedom. And um, Professor Pierre Foss, if you could comment on that, we uh, in our last moment, uh, last minute of, of of the show, it's uh, sadly coming to an end, unfortunately. But if you could just comment on this idea of human dignity, we know that we have issues mm. of people not having access to basics, mm. uh, to basic rights such as toilets, even. Mm. Uh, do you feel that in general, the public of South Africa feel as though those rights have been fulfilled? Well, I don't think the rights have been fulfilled. So there's a gap between what the Constitution promise and how people's lives are in reality. And so what we all have to do, and not only the politicians, but also ordinary citizens, we have to try and work towards narrowing that gap because the Constitutional Court cannot do that on its own. It needs to be all of us because there is still clearly a huge problems and huge inequalities and many people who are not having their dignity respected, especially because of economic issues. And in, in enforcing this idea of people having their rights being respected, what do you think in, I know it's short time, but what do you think people need to do in order to enforce their, their rights and enforce the, the fact that their rights should not be violated? Well, it's important for people to know what their rights are and it's also important for people to actually stand up um, so, for example, if somebody discriminates against you, it, I know it's sometimes very hard and it's difficult for a person with privilege to say that, but I think it's very important to stand up for what you believe in, to say, no, you cannot do that to me. If you go into a restaurant and somebody treats you badly because you are not a rich white person, then you must tell that person, no, it's not allowed. <laughs> wow, thank you so much to my guest, Constitutional Law Professor Pierre de Foss and Professor well, I'm Professor Yukorda, Public Law Professor at UCT. Uh, tune in to VOC 91.3 FM next week at the same time, 6 p.m., for the second exciting episode of Constitutional Matters. You are listening to Constitutional Matters with myself, Zakir Desai. Assalamu alaikum and good evening.